Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by Bard MBA's Martin Freeman, and we're speaking with Sherry Yusuf Yunus and Alejandro Crawford about the democratization of entrepreneurship. Sherry Yusuf Yunus is a youth workforce development, ICT4 development, and women's economic empowerment consultant. Alejandro Crawford is the managing director of Acceleration Group, where he works with the leaders of companies, governments, universities, investors, and NGOs to harness the potential of disruptive leaders to remake our economy. So, Sherry, I want to start off with you because you seem to have this very, very, very interesting perspective um, and experience in working with not only women entrepreneurs and the um, uh, the Middle East and, and the MENA countries, but you have a, a perspective on international development um, that is almost parallel to none. So, Sherry, just tell us a little bit more about um, how you got into that space and what inspired you to focus on uh, women and economic development. I think what prompted my kind of going down this path started with my work in ICT for development. So my kind of early entree into international development started with working for technolo- technological solutions for economic growth and economic development. Um, that inevitably led to a pathway of um, understanding how youth can engage in economic development and how technology can be an extremely powerful and effective vehicle for youth engagement in, in, in economic and international development. I've worked a bit on trying to leverage technology for youth engagement, um, more specifically a platform for serious social gaming and trying to help youth um, to actually meet youth where they are, um, which is using technology, leveraging technology. Um, that made me kind of open my eyes to a broader cohort of people in the regions that I'm working in um, and digging a little bit deeper into that youth cohort and in, in kind of a, a segmented way in terms of young girls versus young boys and how their access to technology and or economic opportunities are constrained. Um, and I think that that's what really triggered my interest in realizing that there is a huge untapped potential in both of those cohorts um, that are not contributing to the economic growth and development of many of the countries that I personally work in. And there's this ongoing emphasis on how there needs to be greater engines for growth, but this lack of understanding that the actual engine for growth is probably in that specific cohort. So I I work a lot in trying to understand what their constraints are, how to improve their access to opportunities, not just educational opportunities, because in many of the places that I work, um, for example, young women in Jordan and in Palestine, I think literacy rates are probably at 99 plus percent, yet their contribution to economic activity is probably around 13, 14 percent. So the return on investment in those cohorts is not very effective. Um, So that's what's really triggered my interest and my 
kind of focusing on how we can more effectively engage the youth cohort and the young girls cohort to be more productive, active citizens in the economic growth of their sub, of their countries. What is it that makes focusing on youth a priority? So for me, it's a very unique intersection of a cohort which consists of, in many countries, again, that I work in, 70 plus percent of the populations are under the age of 30. So there's this global demographic youth bulge, but it's particularly acute in the MENA region, in the Latin American region, Southeast Asia, where there is just an excessive amount of idle youth that are neither contributing to the economic growth of these countries, and they are, as we've seen globally, unfortunately, also contributing to the social instability in a lot of places. So I think it's a double-edged sword in the sense that neither are they contributing to the economic productivity, nor are they um, helping support social stability. So that, for me, is an extremely important, interesting angle to look at it. But as I said, this is a unique intersection of that cohort with technology. Um, as we've seen, there is endless potential in terms of technological solutions to economic growth challenges, to social stability challenges, and the list goes on and on. So that intersection of youth and technology and kind of economic and social growth and stability is really why I think this is such an important cohort to invest in. Um, I'd also reiterate that that cohort, as I mentioned, are often either educated or school dropouts that have an untapped potential. So for me, that's where the entrepreneurship component comes into the equation. So there are simply not enough jobs out there to absorb this population, and there will never be enough jobs created by traditional private sector growth to absorb the exponentially increasing numbers of youth. So the only other alternative is self-employment of some sort, whether it is formal entrepreneurship, informal livelihood generation, but it is the ability to empower and enable those youth to tap into their assets and their potential to be productive citizens um, and to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining, I think is really, really critical. And that's why I feel that this intersection of youth, technology, economic growth and social stability is really kind of where we all need to be focusing our efforts. When you talk about youth and you talk about employment and you talk about technology, it almost sounds as if you are talking about the democratization of entrepreneurship. Am I correct? Absolutely. Um, and you're touching on what I find a very um, challenging situation because as I mentioned, some sort of self-employment, some sort of self-livelihood generation is really the, I hate to use the word magic bullet, but it's really something that's got to be leveraged to try and solve this um, situation. And in the context that I've been working in, there have been extremely successful entrepreneurship models set up, these kind of micro ecosystems of very, very efficient and effective entrepreneurial spaces. However, they're extremely exclusive. They're very reliant upon networks. They're really kind of catering to a very, very thin slice of that population. Those who either have had a successful education and that has leveraged and opened the network for them or people of a certain social class and status that also have access to a network 
that has enabled them to tap into that ecosystem. But writ large, the entrepreneurial space in the context that I'm working in is not open and is not inclusive. And I feel very strongly that those ecosystems really need to be more inclusive, they need to be more accessible, they need to cater to a broader pool of talent. Um, and I think that that's a win-win situation. It's, it's win for the ecosystem because they're very confined to a certain cadre or, or, or sliver of society. And it's also win for the youth population at large that is unable to really leverage their assets and their capacities and their talents because they don't have access to those entrepreneurial ecosystems. Okay. And and so and so I'm I imagine that in the countries that you also work with, um, you see a lot of this talent and it it's almost it's almost a shame that sometimes it based on the, the environment that they're in, this talent gets wasted. Um it's almost like there's a, a, a stigma around entrepreneurship in the in these areas in these countries that you work in, um, to the point where, you know, they don't they don't know what's possible. They don't know how to uh, navigate the regulations. Um, they have a. Um, it just seems like it's a something that you know. It seems impossible, but I, I would imagine that in these regions, they also have to do it out of necessity to to survive too, right? Absolutely, and I think that that's an important point you're touching on. That there is a range of entrepreneurial experiences and, and, and kind of a scaffolding, let's just say, of entrepreneurship that needs to be mapped out. Um, there are most certainly entrepreneurs of need, and, I, and that's more of the livelihood generation um, capacity or category, rather, that I would put them in. And that's what, in the Arab world, um, stimulated that whole Arab Spring in 2012. It was a street vendor who had set up shop um, selling fruits and vegetables on a street side in Tunisia who had some altercation with kind of the police force. And lo and behold, that triggered kind of the boiling over of a lot of um, kind of suppressed tension. Um, but that was really ultimately triggered by an entrepreneur of need um, of an individual youth who was trying to simply generate sufficient income to sustain himself. So there is definitely a very um, prolific and um, very, very deep um, pocket of that un um, need entrepreneur that exists in many of those emerging markets that we're working in. Um, and then there's also another level of aspiring entrepreneurs who don't necessarily need it, but are unable to find more traditional wage employment. Um, and that's a common desire for parents and a lot of the influencers of these youth that they get into more traditional secure wage employment, but unfortunately, as I mentioned before, neither the private sector nor the public sector is able to generate sufficient job creation to absorb. So these are the entrepreneurs that have a, a significant skill set of some sort, but do not have access to the ecosystem, do not have knowledge of what it entails to start their own business. Um, I think there's also another complicating factor is that a lot of the regulations in these countries do not afford themselves um, the ability to start a business. So bankruptcy laws, for example, in the Middle East, there are only, you are personally liable for whatever debt you take. You are not buffered. So there's a huge risk threshold that entrepreneurs are expected to take that they do not take in a in more sophisticated um, entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, so 
Then there is, of course, as I mentioned before, this very kind of elite um, cadre of entrepreneurs who have access to the investors, who have access to the other parts of the ecosystem to finance. Um, but they're a very small, small number. Um, and so I think it's really important to also, as you rightly noted, to understand that there are varying types and degrees of entrepreneurship ecosystems that need to be set up as well to accommodate those different circumstances. I think that there is definitely a global acknowledgement and realization that job creation needs another solution. It's not going to happen by traditional means. Um, so I think that it was, um, and that ironically, some of the challenges in the more developed world are not that different than those in the emerging markets that I've been referring to. I just wanted to shed light on the fact that in excess of 70% of Indonesia's economy, one of the, the fourth largest country in the world, popu um, their economy, over 70% of it is informal, meaning it's taking place without kind of traditional structures, be them employment structures, be them regulations, be them financing. So the amount of entrepreneurial skill set that's being developed with the hundreds of millions of people in that country is not being tapped into in the absence of formalizing in some way that activity. Very similarly to the countries in the MENA region where in excess of 40 and 50% of their economies are functioning in an informal fashion, which is inherently and innately building entrepreneurial skill sets. So the need to formalize in some capacity, and, and this platform offers that through credentialing, is a really, really key um, success factor in, in, in channeling and, and, and reaching into that untapped talent. Um, and I also wanted to say there's a very interesting angle um, in terms of the gender issue, and, and that's something that I focus a lot on, especially in the MENA countries. Um, so I'll, just an anecdotal example is that um, Uber, of course, is kind of globally one of those huge success stories in, in startups and being innovative with technology. But social norms in the MENA region have a, a great amount of restriction around female movement and um, movement between the sexes. So um, a group of women in Egypt and in Jordan have started their own kind of women's only Uber platform, completely informal. Um, and they just offer transportation services for women by women only addressing women to kind of work around social norms. But it's a completely kind of um, organic solution. It's a, it's, a, it's a young girl who just started the idea on her own, used friends and family to get financing, and then has leveraged and to Alejandro's point now, you know, enabled a, a significant number of other women who would traditionally be unable to be employed to have successful employment within the social constraints of their local context. And Martin, if I could focus on one thing, it would be what Sherry just described. Because yeah, yeah, please. I, I, I think we get used to, thanks, I think we get used to thinking of economic development as this sort of, you know, 50-year or, you know, in um, East Asia, maybe 20-year process where you move from being what we call a factor-driven economy to being an efficiency-driven economy, and then only then can you do innovation. And it's one of the great lies that we're told that leads us to take a make-work approach to job generation. Um, what Sherry's describing is when you have 70% informal economy, there are workarounds and solutions 
that create real market opportunities and pain points right and left from the need to have workarounds for payments, right? Um, if you ever read the early history of Alipay and the absence um, at that time of effective business credit mechanisms in parts of the Chinese economy, and then Jack Ma saying, wait a minute, we can come up with a better way of doing this and actually sort of leapfrogging, in my mind, um, some of what you have in Western economies, all the way to what B.J. Govindarajan has described with Chris Trimble in, out of Tuck in his work on reverse innovation, where um, you, know, you can take an EKG machine that traditionally, as he says, you need a whole hospital, but you're, you're in rural India, and so you redesign the machine so that it can work um, for the needs of a low infrastructure environment. The point I want to focus on is that the more of these problems you have, the more vexing it is to do traditional economic development. But the more, if you resource the kind of, to be intentionally redundant, resourceful people who are young entrepreneurs, the definition of doing it is to, as Howard Stevenson has said, to pursue opportunity with resources not yet controlled, right? And that's why the entrepreneurial function is so critical because when you have all of these needs, then that entrepreneur comes in and says, wait, I see something that can work better here and finds a way to draw those resources outside of her control um, in order to prove out a solution that can then be scaled and that's what's so critical for job generation. Can I jump in for a moment, Martin? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, sure. Yeah, and, and kind of just going back quickly to your question about the vibe and kind of the, the conversation in the room at our event um, that we attended recently. Um, something that I was trying to reiterate um, was that I really think in looking at these solutions and looking at how to democratize the ecosystem, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, I think it's really important to let go of our kind of traditional constructs and our more conventional um, definitions of things. And I say that because um, by way of example, there are some fascinating models that aren't the traditional entrepreneurial ecosystem model, but I think are platforms for innovative solution breeding, for lack of a better word. Um, so the Fab Lab, Fabrication Lab movement that came out of the MIT um, space has now moved into something called maker spaces, which are very popular kind of around this part of the country and, and, and obviously very popular on the West Coast as well. But they've made their way into these emerging markets. And there's huge maker space movements in these developing countries where there are just platforms for these youth to go in and have a random idea and play around with it to try and make that uh, reality, you know, make that image, um, that thought of theirs a reality. And I think that piggybacking and, and, and looking at those platforms and building your ecosystem around them are also going to be very important. And I guess my, my point here is it's challenging to go into those emerging market environments with a very strict definition of entrepreneurship, of access to finance, of access to marketing, of product design, product development, because the landscape isn't totally conducive to it. So being open-minded, taking nuggets of what's working and building the ecosystem around them, I think are going to be really, really important as well going forward. Is there is there a, a quick story you could tell me 
uh, Sherry and Alejandro, is there a quick story you could tell me about a a youth or a student that you've come across um, that has just solidified and confirmed all of the work that you're doing? Um, absolutely, but it's, it's going to have a little bit of a twist to it. So I've done a fair amount of focus group discussions with youth, with young girls, um, trying to really understand what their aspirations are, what their prospects look like, what their wishes are, how they look for employment, why they're studying what they study, et cetera. So I was with a group of young girls at the university in Erbid, which is the northern border of Jordan and Syria. And um, it was probably a focus group of about 15 girls who were mostly seniors in the engineering program because Jordan has the highest, if not uh, the highest, one of the most highest um, percentages of female engineer graduates in the world, actually. And they ranged from chemical engineers to civil engineers, mechanical engineers, the whole range. And I remember talking to three or four of them asking what their prospects were. One of them said she was probably going to go into pharmaceuticals because her family had a pharmacy and that was the most realistic employment prospect for her was to assume employment in her family business. Um, another girl said she probably was not going to work, probably just get married and start a family. Um, but one of those girls said to me, she said, you know, I've thought of this idea um, of having an emissions control device that you could um, attach to the gas nozzle of a vehicle and that that would kind of help eliminate the emissions, um, the, the negative emissions that are coming out of vehicles. So she had thought in her mind of this whole idea of a solution to a globally challenging problem but really had no idea of how she would ever do it. It was so passionate in her mind in terms of what she wanted to do, but she had no passion around, and this is how I'm going to do it, and this is where I'm going to go, and this is going to help me get the financing. And she just had no hope, let's just say, for realizing that dream of hers. And it's, it's those events that really make me come back to my desk and come back to the colleagues that I'm working with and, and kind of come at it 10 times as passionately as I started with it for that one girl to be able to realize her dream and to be able to have hope that she was an engineer and she's coming out of that program with solutions, not into a world and a space where she can never realize it, but she'll be actually entering into a world and a space where those dreams have some, some shape of reality in her mind. Wow. That's, that's powerful. To speak to that, Sherry, um, something that I think a lot about and that we've discussed in our coursework and Martin's been involved in these conversations has to do with access. And your story about this young woman not knowing where to begin but having an idea that may just be an idea that never comes to fruition. Um, can you and Alejandro also, would you be able to speak to the business case for access? I know you touched upon it. Um, briefly, but I feel that without access, there really isn't a level playing field for all the promise of, you know, at least in the States, oh, you can be and do whatever you want, but really that's not the reality if you don't have access to resources and people to champion you. I, I think you put it extremely well, Katie, first off, and it, it, it um, harkens back to, harks back to something that um, Sherry said early in the call when she said that too often 
where entrepreneurship is made accessible is to those who have networks already, and it's a very thin slice, if I'm quoting you correctly, Sherry. I, I think that the the biggest risk is it's not just that we say, oh, somebody looks like an entrepreneur, I'm going to give them credibility, right? Um, it's not only that we still do um, the resourcing of entrepreneurs the way we've done it for 100 years, right? It's still very much about going to that meetup if, if, you're, if you're in a developed entrepreneurial ecosystem or that entrepreneurial roundtable and pitching what you're doing. And the problem that we run into, um, there's a study that was done on a group of uh, university students in South Africa. And what they learned was really important. They compared the access to entrepreneurship for the male and the female students. And what they learned was that what's blocking access is not only the obvious factors, such as an external prejudice or exclusion, but there are also a lot of more um, factors more below the surface. One that uh, I remember striking me was that the awareness of resources for entrepreneurs at the university in South Africa was far more limited amongst the female students. Right, so you have these cell, and, and there are, there are a lot of other corroborating social factors. But you have this this not corroborating, but um, um, uh, exacerbating. I mean to say social factors. But you have this phenomenon where even awareness of the resources that you could get for free was more limited amongst the women. And so, um, if I could, I would first, Katie, just say that um, I do think. It's all about access. We have a bad habit of thinking that we, we spread opportunity by spreading the fruits of, of our labors. But really, I think we need to flip it and say, no, we need to spread the opportunity to create um, the new solution that scales. And frankly, um, if you look at the exacerbating access factors, um, uh, Clarissa Hauptman um, has done a study which shows that even debt is priced higher for companies with female executives, right? The market is so used to, it's not just about the wage class dealing. To me, it's about the, the, the ownership. And until I think of it as seats at the table, if we don't stop fighting for seats at the table and instead fight for the right to make the tables, we might as well stop fighting. I think access is a really, really critical piece of the puzzle. And I think um, it takes varying shapes and forms. And for me, access for youth isn't just about access to finance and mentorship and marketing and product development, but it's also got a very large social um, social situation around it and as such that these youth have a lot of influence around them, around them, namely parents who are really not that supportive of entrepreneurship or technical and vocational training. And I think it's really important that that access conversation, as I said earlier on, 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 on our conversation, that we need to, when we look outside of kind of the developed world and the Western kind of models of, of these platforms that we look at it with a slightly different lens, because as I said, access here is about convincing those influencers to support their youth in 
entering entrepreneurship, to convincing the mothers and the fathers that this is a successful pathway regardless of whether the venture succeeds or not. It's building unique skill sets that's going to make their child or their student more marketable when they do seek employment. It's about building those ecosystems that are women only so that that girl that I spoke with has the opportunity that in a socially acceptable manner to get into an incubator that's for women by women only and let her really tap into the potential she has in, a, in, in an accessible setting. So not to go on for too much longer, um, I just want to say that it's really important that we also look at access in its broader definition um, when we're looking at those different contexts. I do want to just relay one story. I was sitting in a row of people. I, um, um, one, one was from um, Liberia. Another was from Democratic Republic of, Con of the Congo. And e each of these people was running an entrepreneurship program um, in their own country. And uh, we were listening to Almira Bairaspa's talk um, uh, before the panel that Sherry and I were on to um, to uh, discuss this framework we're introducing. And um, one of the conversations on the table was about, you know who put it best was um, Sujata Mitra when he talks about multiple kinds of remoteness in his TED Talk. There's remoteness from access in a part of rural India. There's remoteness from access also, though, when you're just a few feet from the most expensive business infrastructure in the world, right? And whether that's, in his example, um, a slum in a city in India with high-tech business parks to a school where last spring in East Harlem at Innovation High School, um, we brought, the Mountaintop Program brought in um, a number of entrepreneurs and flipped things on the head. We asked students there, what do you think should work differently and how could it be made real? And what we found, um, Sherry and Martin and Katie, um, really uh, struck me very powerfully, which is that, one, these kids had answers immediately. Two, most of them didn't walk in thinking that they were the kind of people that could make those answers real. But three, um, once they met entrepreneurs, who, you know, as we like to say, before they looked like, a, like some fancy entrepreneur, they looked just like we do, right? And they met people who had made their ideas real, and I've since been told by teachers in this program that those kids are now figuring out how to bridge that remoteness so that whether it is in the developing world or it's in the inner city here, if we don't find ways to remove a few of those obstacles or at least make them small enough that a kid can climb over them, then we really are cutting off um, our potential for future growth because we'll just be making the same old solutions that the same people who are the usual suspects and members of the club have already made. For more information about Alejandro's work, visit accelerationgroup.net. And for more information about Sherry's work, visit DAI.com. Join us for the next Sustainable Business Fridays, where we'll be speaking with Rebecca Hamilton, Vice President of Research and Development and Quality Assurance at W.S. Badger Company. Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change.
Learn more at bard.edu.